Welcome to Senior Connect, a podcast by Okra. In this episode of Caregiver Conversations, host Andrea Parado is joined by Natalie Hansen to discuss the seven stages of dementia. Oh, hello. My name is Andrea Parado, and I am a certified dementia practitioner, and I'm here with Natalie Hansen, who is also a certified dementia practitioner. And Natalie and I thought it would be very important for us to discuss the different stages associated with Alzheimer's disease and dementia because there is so much happening within each stage. And sometimes these stages will actually work for other forms of dementia as well. So hopefully this topic will be helpful. But please see a medical professional for any cognitive testing or diagnoses. So one stage one is normal, that's no dementia. So then we would have to move on to um, stage two and we can start there. So we know that within this stage, there are some changes related to memory, some problem solving, some judgment skills that have been gradually occurring over time. Um, There may be moments or times when the individual could be very tired, stressed, sick, or even frustrated. To understand a little bit about a stage two and their cognition, it's kind of like the age of a 20-year-old plus, right? So their their brain's still working pretty good, but their ability to process and understand the world around them is more of like a in your 20s, right? Right. So to elaborate more, Um, sometimes it's hard for the individual to find the right words or sometimes just words. Um, they have the ability to describe, um, a lot of what they're trying to say so that people can kind of follow along and they don't appear like they don't know what they're talking about. Um, it's very embarrassing. I think sometimes when you forget what you're saying and you're in the middle of, of a conversation, so they try to hide it or mask it. Um, Word tending will tend to be more challenging um, if they're tired or they don't feel well or they have a lot of stress. And sometimes even if they're trying to do way too many things at one time, Um, often they're going to talk out loud to um, as they try to go through the different tasks so that they can try to help themselves get it. So, Natalie, what type of prompts could one use to help a person who's in a stage two? Well, if the individual has like a preferred learning style or tends to like specific prompts such as notes, calendars, uh, phone calls, reminders, or alarms, you can try to use that mode. Um, For example, you could do um, lists. Um, That tends to help a lot. Like a to-do list? Like a to-do list, um, a grocery list. daily or weekly pill boxes to help with those reminders of taking the, their pills and, and, and doing their medications. Um, can do whiteboard notes, get a whiteboard and leave it yourself some, or leave themselves some notes on the whiteboards. Um, written or picture instruction sheets also help really well. Okay, so like if you have a calendar on the wall and you're at mom and dad's or something and one of them has dementia, you can actually write appointments and stuff on there so that it helps them remember yeah. or set alarms so that they know when to take their medications, like on a, on a phone, if they have like a cell phone, you can put, you know, take your meds and then yes. you already have that pillbox set up. So they know. Yeah. Set up reminders on their phones. <clears throat> yeah. And that's helpful. Have you ever noticed that when two people are really close, like a spouse, we tend to fill words in for them or finish their, their each other's sentences 
it's very common. It's yeah. actually pretty natural. Even best friends will finish each other's sentences. If the individual is fine, I think, and comfortable with you filling in words, you should feel free to do that, right? Right. But if they're if the individual is not fine with you constantly filling in their words because they're trying to, you know, to get those words out, then you might have to be a little bit more patient with them and just allow them the time to get those words out and just slow things down to their pace. And of course, you always want to try to honor their preferences, um, their choices. Uh, that's, this helps, I think, with the frustration and the anxiety. So that's about all about stage two. So I think we should move on to stage three. And I think to better understand the individual within this stage, it's very important to understand their cognitive function. Um, so when they reach their, this stage, their ability to understand and process the world around them is at the age of a teenager to a 20 year old. But Natalie, does that mean they're gonna act like a teenager? Or is it just their ability to kind of understand? It actually encompasses all aspects of their ability to function. So physically as well. Physically as well, yes. Um, the brain is still clear and sharp, and at other times it can be cunning or hard, which may not be typical for them. Right. Um, and the individual uh, may have many facets, and everyone could see they see them differently. They might potentially cause conflicts amongst the care teams or family members. And we see this a lot. Yeah. Where, where we're trying to manipulate to get our way, as teenagers will do. Um, and so they, they kind of act like a teenager. They have those types of behaviors, yeah. I guess you can say, yeah. or expressions. They, they tend to reflect your concerns back as they are processed. They work to hide them and sometimes mention or treat them as just normal getting old. So it's more of like a, a hiding of what is happening. Oh, okay. It's that embarrassment factor. Like, yeah. I don't want people to know that there's something wrong with me, so I'll just pretend that nothing's wrong. And a lot of times they get very good at hiding what is wrong. And so as, and jumping ahead a little, as this, as they progress into stages, sometimes it's I didn't, as they get into a later stage, it's I didn't realize anything was going on because they got so good at hiding yeah, what, what is going on. Because a lot of times, um, like when, when the, with a spouse who fills in words for you, you don't recognize that they're actually struggling with that word finding because it's just automatic for you to, to fill that word in for them when they're searching for it. And so the spouse might not even recognize right. that their loved one is having memory conflicts because it's just so natural to do that. You're, you're supporting and helping out your loved one. And if it's something that they've always done and it's a repetitive action, you don't no notice kind of like the little inconsistencies in it because it, it's something that they're used to doing. Right. That makes sense. It's, they're very good at hiding it. Yeah. Um, they can be very rigid and inflexible at times. Um, they like things the way they like things. They like to do things the way they want to do things. Um, and they seem very less aware of boundaries. Yeah. And so this is where we get into that, that teenager behavior that we see expressed. They want to be unique. They want to be the center of attention. They cause conflicts among um, care teams or, and, and with families. Um, they don't seem to really care about, you know, how it's making other people feel because it's all about me right now, you know? And at the same time, you have a hard time helping them because it's, why are you in my room? Why are you in my stuff? I can do this myself. Leave me alone. And it's that 
that teenager mentality that and behaviors that they're actually exhibiting. Um, I think they're going to struggle a lot if you try to change their routine or change the expectation, um, changing the settings and, and situations. I think that they don't deal well with a lot of, of, of change. And so um, you try try to keep their routines, try to keep those habits and their, those preferences that they've always had. Um, they can become accusatory, thinking that others are trying to trick or conspire against them. All the time, people stole my stuff. Um, that lady was in my room and she took stuff. Who are you in my house? Why are you here? Um, yeah, everybody's always trying and, to trick them. And it them. even comes in the hiding it part where, you know, if you start um, noticing the changes, and, you know, it can start saying, hey, is something wrong? And they can start becoming accusatory that way, too. Right. And you're accusing me that there's something wrong with me and I know I'm fine. Right. Um, very, very, very good at social chit chat. And this comes in with the masking, because if you have a conversation with them for a short period of time, just like you come to visit them and it's you stay for half an hour and you leave, often you won't notice the, the conversational and deficits and the word finding issues and them struggling to sequence their thoughts because they're good at masking it for that short period of time. Um, and so a lot of people don't see that they're actually struggling, you know, with those short little visits. And um, if you if you try to tell them that you're just not getting it like you used to you're just you're just not understanding i feel like that just causes more anxiety yeah it causes more frustration because they don't see it they're not aware of those deficits as much um so i guess the question really is how can we help them how can we help them in this stage well one would be just to, to not argue oh stop arguing, stop arguing with them oh. um and give up reality orientation stop you, you don't have to be right. Oh, you know, so you want to stop needing so to be right. Stop needing to be right. That's, that's, that's a good one. Support them without being bossy and taking over completely. Let them still have that control uh, of their life because they feel so much is spiraling out of control with the, the changes going on and all that stuff and, and memory problems. They need to have some of that control still. That makes so, sense. So, um, say you're sorry. You know, if they're getting frustrated, just, I'm sorry, I was just trying to help. And it, and it might actually ease it a little bit. Yeah. Because they still are compassionate individuals, even though they have Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and, and often, you know, when you're apologizing, think about how you made them feel. Because you don't realize when, when you try to help somebody who's been independent their whole life and now they're struggling, when you try to help them, it makes them feel incompetent. It can make them feel stupid. It can, and, and it, that in turn makes them sad or upset or more frustrated. So, you know, try that, you know, I'm sorry if this made you feel uncomfortable, or I'm sorry if, you know, I made you feel like you couldn't do it yourself. And that actually goes a long way when you're interacting and building that relationship of trust, I think. And I think asking how you can help them how can I help you that yes because they can still respond right. they can still answer questions and they can let you know what they need from you rather than just assuming and thinking that you know what they need and to piggyback on that I think we need to remember 
funny word, to stop saying, don't you remember? Right. Because we know it, when, when we're getting to this point that we're starting to see that we're having trouble remembering, we're having memory conflicts, we're struggling finding words and remembering where the, what the conversation is that we're talking about. And when we say, well, don't you remember when I was here yesterday and we discussed that? You're, you're causing them to shut down so that they can try to find that file in their brain to remember what it is that you discussed with them yesterday. And that just leads to more frustration and agitation and even anxiety, because why can't I remember? Right. Why can't I get to that? So I think, I think that, yeah, not using the word remember is going to be huge. And I think that goes back to some of the strategies we discussed for, for um, the previous stage about using lists, using whiteboards. You know, if you're discussing something important as far as, you know, doctor's appointments or medication or whatever, using those lists and whiteboards so that, you know, they're not having that much frustration of not remembering. Right. It help, I, Yeah, it helps with those, um, uh, those memory conflicts. And, of course, you want to keep your voice calm. You want to be friendly. That really goes a long way. My mom always taught me you get a lot more... Um, catch more flies with you catch honey. more flies with honey than you do vinegar. That's exactly it. And I, so I think that if your approach is more friendly and your voice remains calm, that you will have a much higher success rate in completing tasks and helping that individual. If you're getting tired or frustrated, take a break. Good. Good advice. Take a break. Um, it's not going to help you or them if you're tired or frustrated at all. It's just going to heighten their frustration. Well, right. Cause they kind of feed off of your, your energy, your body language, your facial expressions. They see that. And so they react to that. Yeah. Yeah. So the more frustrated and, and it's okay to walk away. It's okay to walk away <laughs> as long as they're safe. It is definitely it's okay. Lesson. It's okay to walk away. It's okay to walk away. Um, limit the sharing of things that are coming up in the future. It can be too much information for them at one time as they're struggling to as they're struggling to remember things you know and and to do things sharing too much of what's coming up in the future can be very overwhelming i remember an instance where we had a client whose loved one was going on vacation and they wrote it on her calendar and it wasn't until like a month from when she wrote it on the calendar and the client was obsessed is this today the day? Is today the day that my daughter's going on vacation? Because because I won't be able to get a hold of her, and she won't be able to take me to the store, and she won't be able to do this for me. And and it was three weeks. Nope, not not for another three weeks. Um, is she going on vacation? But every day it was the same questions, right. and you could see that anxiety of you know is she she's not going to be around, and so limiting that sharing in such an advanced amount of time especially when you write it down so they visually see it all the time, can be really difficult. Right. Um, And, of course, you're always wanting to keep as many old habits and routines as possible. That really does help eliminate that confusion because they're doing the things they already know how to do, you know, and keeping it easy, keeping it simple. Um, And that wraps up uh, stage three. So I guess we can move right on now into the stage four, which is actually our early stage of Alzheimer's disease. And I think that when we reach this stage, this is when your close family and your friends are really going to start noticing those changes. Um, it, it's, it's different for every individual, but they're pretty similar. The, the, the memory and the cognitive changes, such as um, problem solving, you know, those judgment skills are way more visual to others. Um, when they reach this stage, they 
have the ability to understand and the process the world around them at the age of a four to a 10 to 12 year old. And there's such a, a span of age there because some days I may process really well at, at that 10 to 12 year old age. And then some days I might not be as clear and I may be at that four, five or six year old stage. Um, and that's, that's how I can understand the world around me. And so I, I will ask other people who I'm training when I go through this stage and say, you know, if your 10 year old was sitting at the table, would you throw them your um, checkbook and your bank register and say, hey, can you just, you know, balance the checkbook, pay the bills and make sure that we have enough money to budget for the next two weeks? And the answer is normally, heck no, I would never give my 10 year old. They don't understand that. They don't understand how that works. And so we're in that same age. This is when finances start to become um, difficult. We're going to pay the gas bill three times in a month. We like to save cash and put it in envelopes and hide it throughout the house because we're afraid we're going to run out of money. Um, and they get really financially focused, um, but they're not able to understand the process of doing those finances. And so families start to notice when things start happening at home and, and, and you know, the money situation starts to get more confusing. So Natalie, there's so much going on in this stage. Can you talk a little bit about what this individual might be going through in a stage four? They, they have limited or no awareness of their flaws and loss of, of abilities. So they just think they're, they're doing great. They, they, think, they think they're doing great. They paid the gas bill three times this month. It's all good. It's all good. Um, they, have changes and losses get more apparent as the day grows late. They start sundowning, um, which is like an increased confusion later on in the day. It's it's like the more tired they get, the more conf the confusion sets in. And you've stressed all day long, right? You're, yeah, you, you stressed all day long trying to just get through the day. That the stress has kind of taken over, and now you're just the confusion sets in even more, and so, so it's even more of a struggle later as the day progresses, and then, then it gets into evening. I can see how that would yeah. happen. They tend to pay more attention to what they see than what they hear. So if they see it, they do it. If they hear it, they may not. Um, be um, they tend to skip their care routines and think that they have already done them. Oh, so this is where yeah, I already brushed my teeth this I morning. I already took a shower. I already did all this. Meanwhile, the shower's dry and no towels have right. been used. Right. We see that a lot. Um, a lot of times they'll think they're in a different time or place in their life. Um, they'll be, you know, maybe experiencing their teenage years or or their early 20s or... So to expound a little bit on that, that has to do with how the disease process goes, right? right. So the first thing I lose is my short-term memories, those right. instant recall memories, right? right? So as, I, as the disease progresses, it stands to reason that I continue to lose those short-term memories till all that's left really are those long-term memories. Right. So it's hard to put myself in the present day when those memories, I can't even access. I can access my my memories from when I was younger. So I guess that's kind of where I'm at. And they may not recognize you like as their daughter. Because I should be much younger. Because you should be younger or I don't even have kids. Because I'm even younger. Because I'm even younger. Wow. Um, sometimes um, they may not recognize their spouse because they're looking for that person from that wedding picture 
And they always have their wedding picture. Yes. Always, always, always. always. If whether you're in their house or whether they have a room in an assisted living or a nursing home, you will always see those pictures of them when they're younger with their spouse. So and you're most looking often, for that. It's the wedding photo. Yeah. And you, so then you're looking for that wife, that younger wife. Right. In the picture. And I'm not sure who this 80-year-old woman is that's saying that <laughs> she, she belongs to me, to me and that she's my wife. Right. Um, and they start making mistakes in their personal care. They want you to help them if it makes them feel incompetent. They won't want you to help them, sorry, if it makes them feel incompetent or stupid. Um, and that, co you know, that can go back to why I already took a shower because they don't want you to know that I can't. Right. And I think that in, in to piggyback off of that again, their emotions get so out of control so easily they that they could just completely go over the top. And usually, like you said earlier, it's way worse in the later afternoon because of that stress buildup and that sundowning and they're just tired and fatigued by the time evening comes around. So they're just plain worn out. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there are ways that we can assist them when we're in this stage as well. Um, and I think one of the biggest ones is Greet before you treat, talk to them, introduce yourself, um, get connected with them, establish that relationship each time you go and try to help them with a task. But when you introduce yourself, remember though, that they are not at that age. So you might have to introduce yourself as just Andrea, not right. your daughter or not your wife. Or maybe not even say, hi, mom, say, hi, Mary, it's Andrea. I'm here to visit with you so that they can process that, take a little bit to process that. Yeah. I think that actually would, would be very helpful um, because they literally could be lost in life. And this moment is what's happening right now. And so we have to try to stay calm always when those emotions are going over the top and try to get connected in a way that they are going to understand. And one of the biggest things that I think it's hardest is that listening because, you know, we're all busy in our lives and we have things to do and we're always, you know, rushing around and doing stuff. And it's hard to listen and wait three, five minutes for somebody to get an explanation or a sentence out. So we fill words in for them. We assume what the end result's going to be and what the needs are going to be. And we don't take the time to actually just listen to everything that they have to say. And you'd be surprised how articulate they can be when you actually let them just get it out. Right. Right. And, and on that point, also, when you're talking, talk slow, don't be, give them so much information at one time, maybe pause, pause, give them time to process exactly what you're saying. So give them time to listen and process. Um, and I think either or choices are going to be really good when we get to this stage, because when you ask, hey, what do you want for breakfast? And I have to really sit there and think really hard. It's hard for me because I'm already having these memory conflicts if I have dementia or Alzheimer's. So maybe give me either or choices. Do you want pancakes or waffles? Do you want eggs or you know, bacon and sausage, or, you know what I mean? Like wheat toast or rye toast, cranberry juice or orange juice. Because when you give them a multitude of, of, I mean, imagine going to a restaurant and the waitress 
comes up to you and says, okay, what would you like to drink? We have cranberry juice, orange juice, prune juice, apple juice, grape juice. And you're just trying to remember you, you lost me at what would you like to drink? Right. Because there's so many things to choose from. And it's just so hard for me to get then, through all that and process then it. And the stress is starting. Right. And now I'm done. And I don't even want to eat her anymore. Yeah. Building a daily routine, building a daily routine and a schedule, I think is key. It's so important to have that structure because we all need structure in our lives. And I think that um, with the disease process, we need structure more than anything. And I think that um, even, even setting my clothes out on the bed, if I'm struggling with that sequencing, and you'll notice when they forget a step and they forget to put an item of clothing on, they'll walk out with their shoes on, no socks, or they'll put pants on, no underwear, or vice versa. So I think that if you, sometimes if you just sequence by laying their clothes out in a row in order of what they need to um, put on first, it will really go a long way in promoting their independence and allowing them to do it on their own. But you're making it, you're simplifying it for them, right? You're, you're literally making it easy and they like easy. It, it, it doesn't cause anxiety and frustration to try to get through all of this because you helped me by just sequencing it for me. Right, right. Um, so I think that if you just break tasks and those, ac those activities and those expectations down into smaller steps and do less at a time that really, you know, helps throughout this whole stage in every aspect, just slow it down one step at a time. Well, and I think it helps to, to build more confidence because they're feeling more success doing these tasks. When you're like, when you said breaking it down or setting out the clothes or whatever, it gives them more confidence. So then, you know, the behaviors can be less, the stress can be less and they're feeling more per se normal because right. I can accomplish this. So then that, you know, that, right. um, and I'm going to do better because I'm stress-free, right? Because I'm not having anxiety and frustration and anger and I'm not irritated. I'm going to, I'm going to work way better on executing these tasks if I'm stress-free and if you could help me relieve some of that stress, you know, by again, taking down and breaking those tasks down into little pieces and taking it a little slower, it's going to go a long way in helping me if I'm in a stage four. So now we can move on to a stage five. So things are really starting to change here. So I think that, um, there's a, there's significant changes when you go from a stage four to a stage five. Would you agree? You I, see, a, yeah. you, you can almost watch that transition happen oh, yeah. and yeah. we we've seen it. Um, and it, it's interesting because I think that sometimes getting them to accomplish those care tasks becomes a little bit easier, not because they can do it better, but because they're just a little bit more malleable. Um, they're not fighting against you so hard because they can do it themselves. They can do it themselves. They're not in that super duper independent stage anymore where they're wanting to be really independent. They're more just grateful that you're, you're willing to help them get through this task. So I think that they're not as rigid and hard anymore, right? They're just a little bit more softer, a little bit more malleable. Um, but the memory and con the memory deficits are may way more significant um, and way more prominent. And when they reach this stage, their ability to understand and process the world around them is around a three-year-old or an 18-month-old to a three-year-old. So we're really 
coming down as well as far as how I can understand and process things. Um, so I think you should explain this um, stage because <laughs> I feel like you're an expert when it comes to stage five. You do well, really work well with this. With this, Thank you. They, they're caught in the moment, focused on uh, sensation of the experience. They're kind of stuck. In the moment. In the moment. Um, and trying to get them to do something or get care completed sometimes just may not work because they are completely stuck in the moment. Um, we had, I remember working with someone who was insisting on needing to go outside and that's all they wanted to do was go outside, go outside, go outside and trying to kind of turn them around, redirection, redirect, redirect them and get them out you know, into doing something else just wasn't going to work because they were stuck in that moment, that insistent of, I need to get outside. Basically, so, so, basically what you're saying is they didn't care about five minutes from now and they didn't care about five minutes ago. What they care about is what is happening right here, right now in this moment. Right. And, and so what you can do to help them in that moment is go with the flow. Let's go outside and take a walk. What? <laughs> um, it really kind of... Um, it, it brings that stress down for both of you. True. Because what it, exercise it, is a stress helper? Exactly. And, you know, forget about what you wanted to accomplish in that moment because it wasn't going to happen no matter what. Probably not. So going out for that walk, getting them with they, you know, taking away that stress for them and you getting a little bit of exercise takes away that little bit of stress for you. And it turned out, turns out to be a really nice time. Then you can come back inside reapproach or have somebody else you know approach them um they have limited safety awareness and don't understand much of the why behind you know what you do or are trying to get him or her to do or not do oh, so if i say come on it's time to take a shower they don't understand why they need a shower or why i'm trying to get them into this right little box that shoots water out right, right? right. i mean it's it's confusing i would imagine it's got to be very confusing yeah um, they have no ability to delay or wait. You know, you think of that 18 months to three-year-old. Oh, sitting on that at the kitchen table and saying, I'll be, I'll be right back. By dinner, I'll be done in five minutes. Five minutes. You yep. come back and that's not going to work. They're gone. <laughs> They're gone. They're gone. That's totally not going to work. Um, so it, you need to respond to them ASAP, um, sometimes for safety reasons, you know, and sometimes just it, it's a great opportunity to engage. They are ready to engage in, in that moment. Take that opportunity. So with the with the dinner scenario, um, if you're going to get dinner ready for somebody who might be in this stage where there's no delay or waiting, wait to sit them down till you have the plate at the table because when they sit down, they're going to see, oh, it's time to eat. Yeah. And it's right there and it's instant. And so you're meeting that them ASAP, like you said, and then you can engage because now you have their attention. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good point. Um, they may not know who you are to them relationship wise, um, but they will frequently know whether they like you or not. I always say, you know, um, it's not just about recognizing the person as far as, you know, who, you know, who they are to you, but the, there's that feeling that you give them. So it's, that it can be that smell, that feeling that, that, that makes sense. That so love. So it's like, I don't know that your name's Natalie, you know, but. I know that I like you. I know that you, I know your tone of voice. Yes. And when you talk to me, I, I just like the way you talk to me. So yeah. I recognize that. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. You make me feel good. You make me feel loved. You, you know, I, I just recognize you as somebody that is good for me. 
That makes sense. I like that. You know? That's interesting. Yeah. I, it's nice to know that they still have that ability. Yeah. You know, to recognize and understand that feeling of being loved. And they also tend to, um, they don't understand personal space. Oh. Oh, yes. They like to. They like to be right there. Yes. Um, uh, they may take things, damage things, you know, act act in a childlike way um, or have easily hurt feelings or sensibilities. Um, yes, just those emotions get get elevated and they can they can really go skyrocketing. Um, they see objects and items, but don't always remember what they are, or how to use them. Um, they may pick up a hairbrush, but not realize that I need to use it to brush my hair. Um, a toothbrush. A I've, toothbrush. I've seen same. a toothbrush being used as a hairbrush. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, utensils. They they'll use. Um, I've seen them use butter knives to unlock doors. Um, so yes, I I can see where objects. They might not know what to do with the object um, as it's intentionally supposed to be used. So they'll use objects in the wrong manner and could actually hurt themselves because like you said earlier, I think you said earlier, they don't have uh, a safety awareness, right? Right. They're, right. I mean, back in the stage four, they didn't have safety awareness. So I can imagine when we get to uh, stage five, it's really it's compromised, safe, yeah. right? It's that I'm just going outside and I'm walking and you know, I, it doesn't matter if there's traffic because I don't understand anyways. I don't understand that that car, what that car could do to me if I Exactly. Right. So that safety awareness is, is really compromised. And when engaging um, with them, doing an activity or something with them, um, simple sorting or manipulative tasks may seem too easy, but they like easy. Easy gives them a sense of accomplishment. And when you can accomplish something in such a, a strange world that they're in, then that it boosts that that inner feeling of yes, I did that. And that confidence, I can yeah. actually feel confident. Yeah, like uh, matching socks. Yes, folding laundry. Something that um, that can be just the simplest of tasks gives them so much confidence. Helping to load the dishwasher instead right. of actually washing the dishes, which you know could become complicated or too much at once. Just loading the dishwasher and just being able to put dishes in there, no matter how how they do it. You can always go back and fix how the dishes are put in the dishwasher if it's not quite what you how you wanted it, but at least giving them that that purpose, that sense of fulfillment that they did right. something. Right. I think that's important for every human to feel that sense of purpose and fulfillment. But I think it's really important for somebody who has Alzheimer's and dementia to feel that they had some kind of fulfillment and purpose in their life because. Just because we have a disease doesn't mean life that stops. Life stops. It's just done. It, it's not what it means. There is life after Alzheimer's and dementia, and it's a lot of it is giving them that purpose and fulfillment. Right. That feeling of accomplishment, like you said. Um, there are some interesting things about the physical aspects of what's going on versus just the cognitive right. aspects. Because I noticed working with Alzheimer's and dementia, when we get to this stage, um, not saying that completing care routines is hard, but it's not easy. Um, it's, it's hard for them to understand what the, why you said behind right. it, but then there's other things going on, um, physically, yeah, certain parts of their bodies become more sensitive. 
So um, like the, the lips, tongue, mouth area, the palms of the hands and fingertips, soles of the feet. And so then it makes doing some care on um, some care or per, you know, personal care routines on them a little bit more difficult because it's that hypersensitivity that they have to. So to I just things. imagine trimming fingernails. Oh yeah. And that's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, they're very sensitive on the tips of their fingers. Yeah. And um, getting their toenails taken care of. Um, Even washing their hands sometimes because that palm of the hand gets so sensitive that it, it's not always a pleasant experience for them right. because it's, it's, it's expanded. And so they don't always tolerate uh, personal care uh, routines that are, we know are essential. We know they need to take a shower. We know they need to use the toilet, but they're not always agreeable um, because of those, those sensitive areas. And I, and they may actually cause them to act out. Yeah. Well, and then because of the hypersensitivity in those select areas, they're not aware of other parts of their body, which means that they do not always feel what is wrong, such as pain or discomfort. Because you have such hypersensitivity in the other areas that the pain or discomfort, they're not always feeling, they're not always aware of it. And so um, you want to watch their body language to try to determine what their need may be. So like if, if I'm holding my side or maybe I'm favoring my leg when I'm walking or facial grimacing. Yeah. Even going so far as to knitting my eyebrows together and, you know, showing that that something's going on. Um, can be ideal ways to actually notice if they're having pain. Right. Um, do they get, I think that this is the stage where incontinence really starts to happen. Yeah. They right? get more incontinent at this stage. Um, they may not recognize the importance of eating or drinking. It kind of becomes, um, not as important, not as important or to they them. forget. Yeah. What or time they think it is. they've already eaten. And so it's like, I've, they, cause they don't recognize the hunger pains if they, if they have them or they don't recognize that they're hungry. And so they'll kind of, they'll kind of go to the wayside. You know, on the um, other end of that, they, I have had, um, Alzheimer's and dementia clients that never stopped eating. Cause they, yes, I think yes, that the I brain stops send, sending the signal, signal of being full and you couldn't give them enough. And yeah. I mean, I, sometimes that's a good problem to have because you know, they're eating and you know, you know, they're not losing in a lot of weight and wasting away, right. but at the same time they could gain a lot of weight and that could also be unhealthy. So you really want to pay attention to how often they're eating or how much they're eating. I think that is really important. And, and prompt them to eat and drink, you know, um, and it kind of goes back to the, you know, sit, you can sit down with them, have the meal with them, try to prompt them to eat that way, you know, and if they say they're not hungry, it's a come sit with me while I eat have a plate of food in front of them. And a lot of times I know if a plate of food is in front of me and I'm not hungry, I still pick at it. Or sometimes because they, they always love their sweets. I don't know what it is. Oh, I yeah. just, they love them sweets. Maybe offer dessert first. The sweet is and one of the last sensations to go. There you go. And so the offer, maybe some cake and coffee while we're eating and also have that other plate of food there, because sometimes that stimulates that appetite. Um, with those sweets. And then you, before you know it, they've cleared their plate. Yeah. They've eaten dessert as well as the main entree. So that's, that's awesome. And I always say, you know, when it, when it comes to the eating and stuff to, if they only, if, if they want to eat dessert first, by golly, let them eat dessert first. Who cares? Right. It's just getting we're just, the food in them. Right. We're just happy they're eating something and, and, and it might actually stimulate that appetite to want to eat more. Yeah. You never know. They love ice cream. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I love ice cream. Me too. So I hope I continue to love ice cream. <laughs> um, so there is a really easy way to assist them at this stage. The word to remember is simplify. Simplify my life. Simplify the world. Simplify their tasks. Simplify, simplify your expectations. Your expectations aren't going to be what they were in the previous stages. No, not um, at all. Just simplify everything. If you, you make it as simple as possible, that's um, you want to offer them cues. Um, exaggerate your your visual responses. Use more automatic social greetings like "Hello, how are you?" instead of just be like "Hey, what's up?" You know, right? Because they might not actually recognize that. Right. Because if they're back in these younger years. What's up? Didn't really appear didn't until really maybe, up. maybe later on, right. and, and generationally wise. So using greetings that they're not familiar with might actually be confusing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with the automate automatic greetings, um, and I think I've been successful. I think using behaviors to guide my response. So if they seem like they're happy and they're in a really good mood, sometimes using humor. Um, can help get through those tasks easier, um, singing and dancing and, and that sort of thing. And just bringing like a lot of happiness if they're in that happy mood, if they're frustrated, I'm going to, you know, stay calm and just talk to them in a pleasant voice and validate why they're frustrated and listen and kind of pay attention to that body language of what's going on on why they may be frustrated. Um, but I think that understanding their feelings um, is going to go a long way in how you can respond in the most successful way when it comes to completing tasks. Um, limiting that verbal information and instructions is always helpful. Um, but keep your, you know, be prepared for those sensory needs, right? right? That, that, that top, those tolerance issues. There are some things that your loved one will not be able to tolerate anymore. And it, and it likely will be due to over sensory, right? I'm, I'm taking in too much. It's so overwhelming. So there's going to be a lot of, of overwhelming sensories. So keep your visit short because the longer the visit, um, the more, conf the more confused they they become a lot more memory conflicts. And it's always better to have five really good minutes than 15 bad. Yeah. Yeah. Always. You'll learn always. to recognize those, those visual cues from them too, when it starts to get too much. Enough. Yes. And verbal cues. Yeah. I think that they let you know verbally as well, um, a little bit, um, by either saying, making comments or, um, asking questions. I think that children also can be very over overwhelming when there's a lot of kids and there's a lot of talk and they're all, you know, kids are, they're kids. They have high energy. They're running around. They're, they're yelling, they're talking, they're, um, and whatnot. And so having a lot of children around them for a long period of time can be very, um, sensory overload. And so, um, maybe limit the amount of children and the amount, and I would say maybe one to two hours at the most, um, to limit that that anxiety and that frustration that might happen with so much sensory overload. And, th and that brings up a good point we didn't really talk about is noise. Noise. Sensory overload Sense with noise. And this stage, I think you're right. It really hits hard. It, it, it really does. It's, it's a, you know, you're sitting having conversation and you've got music going on and you've got noise from outside and stuff. It can be a lot. 
So you might want to limit the amount of noise that you have going on. Um, I, th I think there's also sometimes when it's hard to differentiate what voice is what. Yeah. And so you have like the TVs on, like you said, and then you have people, the neighbors working out in the yard and you can hear them talking and you, it's just like this disembodied voice and you don't know where it's coming from. And so this is where that, that little bit of that paranoia starts to come in and that anxiety and that, that feeling of, of being unsafe or unsure, um, because you don't know who's talking to you or where they are and you can't find them. Right. And there's not a person standing in front of you, you talking. So I, yeah, a lot of noise, um, a lot of increased lighting, bright, bright lighting can be very distressful, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, that lower lighting, um, and that softer music, that's not a lot of words, but more of like a classical or big band, um, from their era might actually help yeah. reduce some of that stress as well. Yeah. Be aware of the environment. Environment plays is key and always be aware that you are part of their environment. True. So when you're really loud, like I tend to be, um, or, you know, you're making a bunch of noise in their house, say, say you came over to fix something, you know, if your husband, if say your spouse comes over to fix mom and dad's cupboards or something in the kitchen, if, if one of them have dementia or Alzheimer's and they're kind of further away in their stages, take them out, take them outside away from so much loud noise and the, the banging of the hammering and that sort of thing, because it can be very sensory overload. Yeah too much coming in at once and I can't, I can't process it and separate it and make sense of it. So I think that that's, that's huge. Um, so going from this stage to the next stage is even more significant changes, a lot of significant changes physically and cognitively, but a lot of, a lot of, uh, physiological changes are happening yeah. at this stage as well. So the brain's still trying to work, it's, but it's struggling. It's struggling to understand the world around them in all areas. Um, they have very deep, rich moments, but they're fewer and fewer, and they're getting harder to see. Those really alert, um, engaging moments where you have that really good, meaningful conversation, those are just going to start to get fewer and fewer and fewer and less and less and less. Um, my fine details, um, my fine motor skills, um, are starting to fail. My ability to hold utensils is starting to fail. Um, when I reach this stage, my ability to understand the world around me is kind of at like a 12 to 18 month old. It's, it's, it's hard for me to understand. Um, I have a hard time with speech. Yeah. I have a hard time, um, feeding myself. I have a hard time putting clothes on. I'll put them on upside down, inside out, backwards, or wear many or layers. wear many layers of clothing. Um, toileting becomes difficult. I don't understand the mechanisms of toileting anymore. I don't understand flushing and wiping and, um, caring for myself. If I have incontinence issues, like that's really starting to become a struggle, but there's some other stuff that's happening too. Um, aside from slowing down in all areas, um, if you try to get me to go too fast, I'm shutting it's not, down. It's not happening. It's not happening. I'm shutting down. You try to, uh, get me to go somewhere, you know, like lead me by moving. I'm going to feel like you're pulling me over and I'm going to fall. So the more you push or pull, the more I'm pushing or pulling away. I'm resisting yeah. because I don't feel safe because 
I think that there's some things happening um, with my vision, vision deficits, double vision, um, depth perception is starting to become a struggle, right? Um, so I'll just become frightened and I'll just become immobile and I'll just latch onto the first item of furniture or something that I can see that's stable and it's going to make me feel safe, right? Um, patterning and carpeting pattern oh, can become difficult. That, a black spot could look like a hole. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, with my experience, when that carpet changes, and if it's changing from a light color to a dark color, the feet stop. They, I'm not walking into that hole because of that, that depth. That transition. That transition. Okay. So, like, from a tile. And what if it's, like, a really crazy busy tile? Yeah. On the floor. That's, I think, even worse because yeah. you're having so many of these visual disturbances. And I can imagine it's really hard to find your balance when the floor looks distorted. Yeah. And these, these things are happening. We, we see our clients um, that we work with run into walls, get stuck in corners, uh, trip over furniture, not even see that it's there. Sit down in chairs that aren't even, even there, there because they think that there's a surface there. So there's a lot of visual deficits happening within this stage, um, losing that, that fine motor in their eye function. Yeah. Um, but they, they tend to keep the big visual skills, right? So they'll see like the big, the big picture, things. but they won't see what's right there in front of them. That's when the tripping and the falling tends to start happening too, a lot more because they're not seeing what is right in front of them on the floor or eating. Oh yeah. Like when they, you have a mug in front of them, but instead of grabbing for the mug, they're grabbing over here because it's, it's, they're fine. And that's, and that's when it gets hard for them to eat because they're reaching for the food or the plate that's in front of them where you think it should be. Right. But when but you actually it should be over here through their visual disturbances or deficits that they're having. Um, so yeah, they, they misjudge distances. Um, they sometimes they'll even try to, um, pick at the floor when they yeah. see patterns in carpet or different colors. They'll, if, especially if there's like white speckles, they think that there's, there's, garbage on the floor yeah. and they'll sit there and bend over and try to pick it up. And at this stage, their gait and their, their balance isn't as good as it used to be. So there is that fear and that risk of falling. Um, so we know we've seen them get stuck in corners. They get stuck behind doors. They'll get stuck in a room um, and they can't get out. Um, and, and of course, tripping over those large objects, um, not noticing things in their paths. Um, if they don't see something, they don't know it exists. So if they can't see, say, a, a uh, sliding glass door with the window in it, if they can't see the window, they're running, they're going to, they're going to walk right through it, or at least attempt to walk right through it. Um, they're, they're less and less interested in eating. You know, we said this before in the previous stages, but it's really become significant here, right? I mean, and I think part of that is, is they are losing that ability, those fine motor abilities, so they're losing that ability also to pick up a fork. And, and I think some of it has to do too to attention span, yeah. being able to sit there for half an hour, forever, how long it takes to eat and staying on task and yeah. not having something distract them. And, and oh, I, I need to go look at that or, or I need to go, you know, touch that or feel that. And so they don't they don't sit long enough to eat a full meal. So they kind of tend to more graze oh, here's a candy bar. I'll eat that. And, oh, look over here. You know, they left some bananas out. I'll eat one of those, but not actually just sit down and eat a full meal. And this is normal. 
It's not exactly easy to watch. And you think, oh, they're just going to waste away because they're not eating anymore. They are eating if you provide that ability to just graze and eat, you know, provide those healthy snacks for them to eat yeah. throughout the day so that you know that they're at least eating something. And like you said, if they eat dessert first, by golly, let them eat dessert first because at least they're getting some something. calories. Yeah. Um, the Ensure shakes and the Boost shakes have been really successful um, in these stages too because they're chocolatey and they're sweet and they're yummy, but they're packed full of vitamins and protein and stuff that they'll need to, to kind of help maintain that and weight. And I think, like you said, it is important to remember that they are going to be grazing. Your, your idea of sitting down to eat it's is no, not the same as their idea. Of, it, you know, right. Of their, it's no longer there. So when when we talked earlier about um, taking down that expectation, yeah, you're going to have to take down your expectations in all areas, especially when it comes to something as simple as dining, because you cannot expect your loved one to sit there through a whole full meal and eat everything on their plate like they did, you know, either previous to the dementia or when it just first started, because it's not going to be the same. So like you said, you have to bring those expectations down a little bit and just know that um, they're finger foods are great or sandwiches where if they're going to get up and walk around, it's something they can walk around with and eat at the same time. Yeah. So at least they're still getting those, those calories and stuff and, and that nutrition. But at the same time, you're meeting that need to wander. Yeah. And the need to wander is great. It is. It, 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 I it mean, is. they're getting exercise and they're wandering around and it, it allowing them that need to wander is a good thing. It, it, it's, to me, it seems like it's their way of soothing whatever is happening. If I'm able to wander and do that, it's their self-soothing mechanism. Kind of like when people rock. Exactly. Or exactly. sometimes they hum because you can feel that vibration of the humming. And so it's it's self-soothing. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I think that's great. Um, interestingly enough, um, they will get injured. So say they walk through a, a doorway and scrape their elbow. And of course we know their, their skin's a little thinner now. And so skin tears are pretty prominent and they could just be sitting there bleeding and not even mm -hmm. recognize the fact that, that they have this wound on their arm. And then, you know, family shows, well, what did you do? And they don't even remember how they injured themselves. Or, yeah. Even know that it's there or that it's there. Um, so because they have that limited body awareness, um, they, they don't tend to know what is bothering them or where on their body it may be bothering them. So they may sense pain, but not know where on their body that pain is coming from. Um, and it, of course it takes more time again, again, it's even, I mean, we're staging up, so it is going to take more time to process things. It is, you're going to have to break things down even to smaller pieces to get them to execute a task or understand. Um, I noticed that they, they tend to look down a lot yeah. when they walk. Yeah. And I think that contributes a lot to walking into objects of, um, and, and doorways and, and, and walls and stuff. Um, but I noticed that when working with, um, the stage six who do have a hard time making contact, because again, there's so much distracting in their world around them that if you actually look at them and say, Hey, look at me. And they, when they make contact, eye contact, that is your, your moment to engage. Yeah. And they can actually maybe pay attention and understand what it, that simple task. Don't give them a list of all the things you want them to do right then because you found that moment. But if it's just sit down, you can't stand next to them because they don't, 
they don't know where your body is or where right. that voice is and they can't see you. Um, and so if you're standing in front of them and you actually make that eye contact and you say, Hey, can you sit down for me? It's going to click. And, okay. It makes sense. Cause I'm, I'm actually able to pay attention to you and I'm actually listening in this moment. Yeah. So we have to just jump in and, and get in, in that moment right away. Um, you want to use hand over hand. This has actually been very successful in actually retraining the ability to feed oneself when just simply using hand over hand, or if they're in that frustration where maybe it's hard to get them to um, self-initiate feeding. Um, and the hand over hand is just literally holding your hand over their hand while they complete a task, correct? I mean, yeah. you can do this while brushing teeth, you know, actually holding your hand over their hand um, and, and helping them initiate the motions or something as simple as feeding um, or holding a cup. Sometimes, you know, they're holding the cup, but they're just not quite getting the steps and you help lift the cup up. And then once it's to their mouth, it clicks and they know what to do. What to do. So sometimes hand over hand is really, really helpful. Um, and using your voice to engage, using your voice to encourage, but you want to limit your talking. You can't just stand there and have like this really long winded one side, one sided conversation because I feel like that would really be uh, um, hard to process, yeah. hard to keep up with. And you lost me at the first sentence because I'm clearly unable to, to remember instant recall. Um, so this is where the families come in. I think when we talk about using what is calming to them, right? You want to explore what's going to help settle them down in that moment. So you have talked about information from families and how important that is. And I think this is one of those things, Yeah. right? Finding yeah. what is going to soothe them or on the flip side of that, what's going to upset them? What yeah. do they absolutely not tolerate? We, I mean, it, it can come down to the type of music that really upsets me. I once took care of somebody who a certain type of music, if you played it, kind of got them going. And so you would have to avoid that type of music for, for them. And on the flip side of that, I had a lady who would never shower, but if you played Play country music, which was her favorite, and danced your way into the bathroom with her, She'd shower she would just long. shower all day long because we were singing and having a good time. And it wasn't as scary because it was, was something she enjoyed. Yeah. And it was fun. So how can we help during this stage? I think that there's a few tips that we can talk about that will kind of be similar to when we were in the stage five. But I think that we have to take it another step, obviously, further. Um, slowing down again. Slowing down. Slow it slowing down. down. Slow it down. We're it's always in the need to rush, 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 rush. It's, it's our human nature these days, but we have to slow down. Yeah. It, it, it takes them longer to figure things out, to do things, to process anything that we're saying or trying to get them to do. Um, so I feel like down. if you just took an, like an egg and scrambled it, that this would be their world. Very scrambled, very hard to discern, very hard to figure out. And like you said, process. And, and you just, you just have to slow everything down using those automatics when possible. You talked about those automatic greetings, not the, the what's up and, and those type of greetings. Um, 
and, and breaking those tasks down, right? Into yeah. those smaller pieces, one step at a time. You can't hand me my jeans and say, here, put these on. And, and it's because there are steps. We don't think about this because to us, this is an automatic function, right? right? Getting dressed, taking a shower, um, getting ready for the day, eating a meal. All of these ADLs or activities of daily living are automatic for us. We've learned these. We know how to do them. And then when we get Alzheimer's and dementia, we have to relearn. We have to relearn how to do them. And so when you give me a pair of pants and say, here, put these on. You have to remember the steps it takes for you to simply put on a pair of pants. Even though it's automatic, there's steps to it, right? You have to lift up one leg. You have to put one leg in. Then you have to kind of either sit down or balance yourself to put the other leg in. And you have to pull them up. And there are steps to doing that. And we all have routines, right? And we all do things a certain way. When you get in the shower, we normally do the same routine when we shower every single time we shower. Right. So my challenge would be to try to take your shower backwards. Try to do those steps in a different order and see how many times you miss a step because you're not sequencing in the routine that you've always known. And so I think it's very important, like you said earlier, to keep those same routines and habits as long as possible. And if we're starting with that at a stage three, we need to continue that through all of the stages, keeping those routines, keeping those habits, because it's going to go a long way in their ability to maintain some form of independence because we are able to do it the way they've done it. And so it's easier for them to get it. And I think also when you're you're asking somebody to to, to do to complete a task, um, sometimes if you can just demonstrate what you're asking for them to do will also help. I used to have a stool in a client's room. Uh, in a client's bathroom so that I could show them what the, the task was I needed them to complete because word words weren't working. Um, and so I needed to use visuals, right? So I put a stool next to the toilet and I would sit down and pat the toilet seat and ask the, the client to sit down with me. And that is how we initiated sitting, but they needed the visual, the visual to see over the verbal because they weren't comprehending the verbal sit. Exactly. And so visual cues um, go a very long way. Um, so yes, demonstrating what you want them to do instead of telling them, I think it is going to be a lot, a lot easier. And, and of course, we, um, as I don't know if this is just a human thing, when somebody doesn't understand what we say, we tend to talk louder and slower, like that's going to make them get it. And we'll do this to, to clients with Alzheimer's and dementia, not realizing that we're even doing it. And it's not helping. Right. I don't think it helps at all, really. So if they're not getting it when you say it the first time or two, saying it louder and slower isn't going to help. Give them that visual. They need that visual so that they can get it. And I think it, it's going to help. It's going to help with those tasks. It's going to help complete those tasks a lot easier. One of the things that you always say, meet them where they are. Yes. Right? So if we start where they are, they can't try. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is transitioning from one task to another is really hard. Yeah. Right? And sometimes it takes a long time. So that comes back to that meet them where they are. Right. Right. Because um, if you can gradually shift those gears and their, and their thought process, 
instead of just trying to go from one task to another so quickly, you're going to limit that frustration, right? I feel. Right. And um, we do this with um, just from like dining to going to their apartment per se. So we're, we're in a dining room and we're eating and you can't, you, you can't, okay, we're going and just go. Right. Because they don't, and they'll ask you the whole time, where are we going? Where what are, are we going? going? What are we doing? Why are we going here? What's happening? What, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? But if you actually sat down and said, you know, hey, I see you're done eating. When you're, when you're all complete, how about we go back to your apartment? You can lay down and take a nice nap. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And now we're talking about it. So that when we go to do that transition, it's a lot, I think it's easier because they're, they're more understanding. And they know what to expect. And they know what to expect. I think that's huge. Um, again, that, that hand over hand guidance. Um, for movement, pointing with your other hand for direction indication is is huge in order to let them know where they're going or what the expectation of where you want them to go is. Um, use your voice. Use your voice to engage and encourage. Um, that's that's huge too. And of course, use what is calming to them, right? Yeah. Um, and then we get to the final stage. This is the end stage. The final stage is stage seven. And, um, the brain is definitely losing its ability to guide and direct my body movements. So, um, my control systems for movement, um, for interaction, for response, for processing, it's failing. I basically have the abilities of an infant. Um, I lose the ability to smile, hold my head up, um, my trunk strength is very limited, so I tend to to lean heavily to one side. Basically, I become total care. Um, everything is just kind of shutting down, and and often they they will fetal in that fetal position, just like an infant, um, because with those limited body movements, if we're not moving their body for them and doing that range of motion, there is that large risk of contractures um, and, and that their muscles are just not going to want to move anymore. Um, and so they end up in that fetal position. So their muscles tend to be active and turned on, um, turned off most of the time. Um, they startle very easily. And they'll, they'll freeze and they'll tighten up when they startle. Um, and if, if you're trying to be too quick with them, um, loud sounds, loud sounds, loud sounds will make them jump and startle. You know, they sleep a lot and their eyes are closed a lot during this time. So a lot of what they're relying on at this stage is that auditory, they're hearing, they're, they're listening and those loud, heavy, those loud, sudden noises can be very scary, um, feeding. You know, we talked earlier about how the lips, teeth, and tongue and all that are, are highly sensitive areas when we get to that stage five. Now we're in a seven. My eyes are closed all the time. And all of a sudden, the spoon just hits my mouth because you're trying to feed me and help me eat. And I startle and, I, and I'm not sure what's going on. I think that if it's simple as putting your hand and having that physical contact and letting them know somebody is there with yeah. them, you know, talk to them, not around them. Um, because they're not an object in the room. They're, they're a human being and they're still trying to process. They really are trying so hard to process. It's just, it's, it's so much harder at this stage. Um, they, they definitely 
spend much of their time resting. They are not aware of much that's going around in the world around them. Um, they struggle to understand what you say. Um, if you use words and you get too loud, they just might shut down and retreat within themselves. I mean, in this stage, they're kind of in their own quiet, beautiful world, right? It's, yeah. Um, they respond best to familiar voices and rhythms. Of course, that touch, that gradual and gentle movements will be very helpful. It's going to take them a while to open up. They may shut down in an instant um, and just fade away for a little while where they, they're just sleeping. Basically, they're just really resting. Uh, I think that their balance gets very poor if they haven't stopped walking at this point. Um, balance and gait get very unsteady. A lot of, lot of falls can happen. They may not be aware that they're leaning or sitting in a certain position for a long period of time because they don't have that awareness of their body anymore. And I think that went all the way, that went back to this last stage and maybe even a little bit in the stage before that. And so you can only imagine it's got to be much worse when we actually hit this um, infant stage. Um, so again, just letting them know where you are. Yeah. You know, um, with, with simple physical touch and, and just your voice is going to go a long way. Um, helping them eat is going to be a very slow process. Um, it is going to be difficult when they don't want to eat anymore. And yet you recognize, um, you know, that they're not taking that food and drinking as much and you're just terrified that they're going to become dehydrated and malnourished. Um, it's very, very normal for them to not be interested in food and drink anymore at this stage. And maybe not in the very beginnings of the stage, but towards the end of the stage, um, this end stage, food and drink is just not going to be appealing anymore. Right. They're just going to eat less and less. They're going to drink less and less they're going to start to have trouble coordinating, swallowing and breathing. And so that's when it gets to where you're giving them very small bites because there's that risk of aspiration because they can't, they can't coordinate the two. And so their food can go right, you know, as we call down the wrong pipe, um, which is that aspiration. Um, so you can't push it. You can't try I know that it's, it's sad because, you know, you feel like they're malnutrition. You feel like they're not getting what they need. And so you try, but trying to push them to eat when they don't want to, or won't can only increase that risk of choking or aspiration. Um, so, and, and, you know, just because they're not coughing doesn't mean they're not having swallowing problems. So at this stage, you know, the brain's not going to recognize the problem anymore. It can't. And so it doesn't react and say cough, right? Because you're choking or cough because, you know, it went down the wrong pipe. So sometimes it just goes down the wrong pipe and we're not even aware. Um, so un unfortunately they can develop pneumonia from that aspiration pneumonia and their body's shutting down. So they're not able to fight the infection like they, they used to be able to. Um, and it's, and it's normal for them to have muscle wasting. It's normal for them to have weight loss. They may develop wounds that don't heal because they don't have enough protein to process. You know, they don't, they're, they're, they don't have that to heal those wounds. Um, so they're, they can become very prone to infections. Um, the brain's not, the brain's not recognizing and it's not organizing a response to those infections. So they will not get better. Um, it is a terminal condition. 
We are in a stage seven and it is terminal. They, um, the things that, that you will start to see are just the symptoms of the end of the disease. It is, it is progressive. It is neurological. There is no cure and there are no survivors. And it's very unfortunate. Um, so they will eat less and less and they will drink less and less. But the, the good news is on with that, if there is good news is that their brain is able to release endorphins during this stage. So they, it, it allows them to not be in distress or not be in pain. And I'm not sure how comforting that is, but for me, knowing that, you know, they're not starving, right? They're not feeling this in, in, in incredible thirst and hunger pains. They're, they're, they're not in distress. And, and I feel that that's a little bit comforting to know that my body and my brain just automatically do that for me, right. you know, protect me, which is a great thing. Um, so they're not going to be hungry or thirsty at that stage. So how do we help during this stage? Um, I think just taking that time to observe and check out how and where they are before approaching, um, determine how alert they are. How aware are they? That's going to go a long way in your approach. Um, sometimes that soothing hand on the arm, um, kind of wakes them up a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't. If they are away, use that friendly voice to try to kind of bring them back. If you can, if they are present, use those moments to interact and connect because they are so few and far between, um, use sight, sound, touch, smell, use all your senses is in theirs as much as possible. Um, but go slow, give them time to take the information in to process it. Um, use the time that you're together to be together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're, we're caring for them, of course, but it's not just always about the care, you know, that emotional support and just letting them know that you're there, I think is, is super, super helpful. Um, com consider the body experiences to allow them to have time that they can enjoying cuddling close, um, stroking, a, stroking a pet. If you have a dog or a cat, you know, that feeling of, of, of sensory of, of petting an animal. I mean, we don't have therapy animals for nothing in this world. You know, they are calming. They, they help, they feel, make you feel good. Yeah. Right. Um, take me outside. Take me outside. Don't leave me laying in the bed all the time. Get me up, get me moving. Take me in my chair, my wheelchair, whatever it takes. Let me feel the sun on my face and the breeze in my hair. Those are all sensory. It's got to feel good. doesn't matter what stage you're in. Right. Right. I mean, I feel that way. Um, so I think that, you know, those can be some very, very helpful tips, um, especially in that stage seven, because it is probably one of the hardest stages. Um, you want to offer them little sips. You can offer them little tastes, but again, don't be so concerned with the amount that they're eating or taking in because, um, it, or what they're taking in at this point, it should be about what they like and not what so much about what is good for them right? They don't need a full course meal. They don't need their vegetable starch and protein. If they'll drink a milkshake, um, or any, anything, take a sip of, take a, take a sip water. of water, or if their favorite drink was coffee, whatever it may be, just give it to them. 
because right now it's all about what they like. It really isn't about what's going to give them the best nutritional value. Um, and I think talking with them is important. Um, talk to them and with them, not right. Not about them. You know, somebody comes in the room and, 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 you know, asks how they're doing or whatever, include them in that conversation. Right. Even if it doesn't, um, even if it doesn't appear like they're responding, right. They're still in there. Right. They're still listening. The hearing is the last thing that goes. Yeah. You know? So I feel like, like you said, include them. Even if they can't respond and be, you know, and, and participate in said conversation, let them know that they're a part of this, that they, yeah, they still matter in these conversations and that, you know, yeah. Um, so to end at this stage, I think that if you're ready, you actually may be able to offer them the greatest gift of all by letting them know it's all right to go. It's hard. Nobody says it's going to be easy, um, but we know that this is the end stage. We know that there's no cure, that they're not going to just, you know, miraculously get better. So if you can give them that gift of allowing them to the knowledge that it's okay to go um, often, they may not be able to leave you. They may not be able to leave you so easily without your permission. After all, they do still care inside that shell. They do. And in, in moments that they can, that they can process and maybe even respond, it's okay to let them know. I mean, I've had, I've had them, I've had clients in stage seven in the actively dying process that wouldn't let go until that family member walked in the door and they flew all the way from across the United States to get there. But they waited that two days until that person walked in the room and said, hi, mom. And then they left the world. They were waiting for permission. They were waiting for that moment. So it's okay. It's okay to, to let go. It's okay to tell them that it's okay to go. Um, and that, that pretty much wraps up all of our stages. And I really hope that this information is helpful. If you are going through this at home, if you are having, um, if your loved one lives in a facility and you go to visit them, there are tips, um, that we discussed that might go a long way in helping you have really good, meaningful visits and conversations. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit us at www.okra.com for more great content.